Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. The Earth's surface is made up of tectonic plates, huge chunks of the Earth's crust that shift and move ever so slowly, sort of like the shell of a hard-boiled egg after you've hit it on the counter to crack it. The Earth's surface is covered with cracks and rifts, now marking the lines between the pieces of the shell that were once intact. And those plates shift and move, rubbing up against each other or colliding in some place, forcing one to duck down below the other or both to rise up in collision. Geologists call the place where two plates meet a fault, and the pressure can build at these points as two plates of the Earth's crust press against one another, grate against one another, arm wrestle with one another, the pressure building until something gives, and the fallout is an earthquake, leaving the ground trembling. Tremors knocking things off balance, out of place, cracking and crumbling, with things to pick up after. The pressure is mounting at a handful of fault lines between Jesus and the religious leaders in the Gospel of Mark. And most of those fault lines pit their religious traditions against the truth of God that Jesus is upholding. Those two things colliding, and something has to give. We've seen these faults shake on the topic of the Sabbath. Jesus reminding them that God created Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. While the traditions of man had turned it to be a burden that took out any rest of it that could have potentially been enjoyed. And in Mark 7, the fault is centered on the tradition of ceremonial washings. And we'll see things rumble and tumble as we work through these verses on this podcast. When it comes to wrestling matches with the Lord, the Lord will always win. His truth will always prevail. His heart behind things will always rise to the surface, and the harder and longer man resists, the greater the earthquake when things finally reach a breaking point. So we are wise to yield sooner rather than later. For the religious leaders at this point in the gospel, they had been holding and building and fortifying their traditions for the longest time, and they aren't planning to yield anytime soon. But Jesus is hopeful that his followers in this scene, and those who follow today, will not be caught up on the wrong side of the fault lines resulting in fissures that actually keep us separated from God rather than drawing us closer to Him. Let's take a look at Mark 7, beginning in verse 1. We read in Mark 7, verses 1 and 2, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of His disciples eat bread and with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. Here's another delegation from Jerusalem, the religious capital of the Jews. They weren't here in Galilee sightseeing or finishing up a conference. They came from Jerusalem for the purpose of finding fault with Jesus. They've heard that the crowds have not mellowed out. People are still flocking to Jesus for the healings, the miracles, the teaching and insights he brings to the things of the kingdom of heaven. Just recently, reports of over 5,000 being fed with just a few loaves and two fish. In John's account of that miracle, he said that Jesus had to get away because the people wanted to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. So once again, from Jerusalem, the religious feds have come to investigate and hopefully put an end to all this Jesus nonsense. And as they're watching, I almost imagine an FBI stakeout in in cars with tinted windows, cameras with zoom lens, agents in street clothes with receivers in their ears, talking into their shirt collars. He's on the move. As they watch, looking for something to find fault over, they get something. Red-handed, the disciples eat, gasp, without washing their hands. 
Now, we've all used our hand, our share of hand sanitizer in the last few years since COVID. I mean, remember the runs on hand sanitizer at the stores in March 2020? Everyone stocking up, if you could even find it. And then the awful smelling stuff that came from distilleries. Anything with adequate alcohol content passing off as sanitizer to kill whatever microbes could be keeping the germs spreading. Don't touch your eyes. Don't touch your face. Don't even eat without thoroughly disinfecting of the hands. This is not exactly what the religious leaders are worried about, though. This is not your mom and dad making you get up from the table to wash up before dinner because you were outside playing in the dirt or basketball or something else that had you touch every single microbe in the universe. The scribes and Pharisees sound the alarm, an APB, because the disciples ate with defiled hands, they said. What is defiled? The Old Testament system of the law placed many things in two categories, clean and unclean. Foods were part of this list, and the whole system of clean and unclean, it was a picture that we are to be a holy people set apart for a holy God. And sin is unclean, and it can defile us. So anything defiled in the Old Testament system needed to be ceremonially cleansed before it could be used, or before it could be presented to the Lord. Go through washings, rituals to make them fit once again for the Lord. It was the law's built-in mechanism to keep us reminded that God was holy and that we were not, and we needed cleansing power to make us fit to approach him. And that part of it was God's design, given to Moses and the priesthood. When it came to washings, the priests had to wash before going into the temple to serve the Lord, representatives of the people before the Lord, cleansing their hands, their feet, sometimes their whole bodies. So the ritual cleansings are a reminder that unclean people who have picked up the dirt of the sin of this world need to be cleansed to approach God something that Jesus will ultimately fulfill for us, our cleansing sacrifice that allows us to approach God anytime and at every time. So what the religious leaders see that day in Galilee here in chapter 7, the disciples are eating with unwashed, that is, defiled hands. To them, it's like if you watch a kid pick their nose and they slowly bring it up to their face and you're thinking, no, don't do it, grossed out even before it happens. And then it finally does happen and you think, I can't believe they just did it so gross. And you never see that kid in the same light again. Even when they grow up and are an adult and have kids of their own, they're always a booger eater in your mind. That's what is going on with the religious leaders, watching every move of Jesus and the disciples and wait, oh no, no, are they really? Yep, they are. As they bring their hands to their mouths, not having washed in the ceremonial way, they're eating with unclean, that is, defiled hands. This is one of those fault lines where the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus comes to head, where those earthquakes and those tremblings take place. If you've ever lived near a fault line or an area in a fault line, of course, that's where air, air, that's where earthquakes normally increase. Places like the San Andreas Fault in California, other fault lines along the California coastline. Even here in the Midwest, there's a few fault lines that have been dormant for a long time that have been shaking and trembling more in, in years past. Those fault lines where the plates rub against one another, where those plates come in contact, that's where the earthquakes are most likely to happen. And when it came to the traditions of the law, and especially the religious leaders' interpretations of those laws, that's where much of the conflict took place in Jesus' life and ministry. So once again, see what it says here in verse 2. Now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. They find fault with them. 
there wasn't really any fault in this, but they found fault with the issue because though the law had some guidelines for some ceremonial cleansing, like for priests going to the temple or others approaching God, these washings that the disciples were not doing were not prescribed in the law, but had been developed and built up and added over the years by the Jews themselves. They weren't in the law, they were additions and traditions. So the disciples were not at fault in this area. There was no fault to speak of there, but the religious leaders found fault with what was going on. And this is where the true fault lies and the potential for an earthquake at this fault line. The the scribes took man's interpretations of these things really seriously. Some rabbis said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. Pretty gross picture there. One rabbi apparently said, He sinneth as much as he as I'm sorry, he sinneth as much as who eateth with unwashed hands as he that lieth with a harlot, putting on the same plane as that. That's pretty serious stuff those disciples are doing, at least in their eyes. And here's what the ceremony will look like. You started by taking at least enough water to fill one and one half eggshells. Then you pour the water over your hands, starting at your fingers and running down toward your wrist. So your hands kind of up in the air, sort of like a doctor getting ready to go to surgery and waiting for his gloves to be put on. And then you cleansed each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. And then you poured water over your hands again, this time from the wrist towards the fingers as they're hanging down so that water could kind of roll off and all that defiled water didn't come back and touch you, reinfecting you once again from those cooties that you'd picked up from the world. And those Jews who really wanted to be strict about this, they would do this not only before the meal, but also between each course, after that appetizer and the salad, and between then when you have the bread and that bread that they bring to your table at the restaurant, and then the main course, and then the dessert. Between each course, they'd wash all over again in this way. The disciples, well, they had skipped all of that just dipping the chips in the salsa and eating them, dipping the carrots in the ranch dip and putting it to their lips, just using the pita bread to dip into the hummus and going right for it. And the religious leaders are finding fault with their snack break. This is a tendency of man, to find fault with the things of God. It doesn't suit our liking, our understanding, our preferences, our reasoning, or the culture. We try to find some fault with the Bible, or with Christianity, or with religion. These conversations can come up all the time. Well, I don't know if I can believe in a God who promoted child sacrifice, a total misunderstanding of what God asked Abraham to do with his son Isaac. Or there are so many inconsistencies in the Bible, aren't there? Ask them to name some and see where the conversation goes. It usually doesn't go very far. Or I think God is kind of oppressive to women. Or love is love and the Bible doesn't really teach against homosexuality if you look at what it really says. Man finding fault with what man doesn't like about God or about what he says, working hard to ignore or circumvent the truths of Scripture, and then deconstructing it and picking it apart in order to justify our own desires, our own actions, our own ways, or even our own sins, placing our traditions either personally or as a society and saying that those are greater than what the Lord says or does. We find fault and say that God is wrong, not us. In such cases, we are on the wrong side of the fault line and standing in the rift zone rather than safely standing on the firm foundation of God and his word. Although the religious leaders in this scene pick up on the hand washing, there was more in their battery that they could have pulled out than just that. Verses 3 and 4, they say this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups or pitchers, copper vessels, and even couches. There was a lot that they could have found fault with. They just pulled the hand-washing card this day. That's the issue with fault finders. We can always find something wrong. Whether that be the religious hypocrite or the legalist, or the secular skeptic or the doubter, or even the critical spouse or cynical citizen or disgruntled neighbor, if our hearts are bent on finding fault, we will always find fault. David Guzik said in this in his commentary on this section of Mark, The concept of evaluating Jesus' ministry was fine. In outward appearance, these men protected Israel from a potential false prophet or false messiah. But the way they actually evaluated Jesus was all wrong. First, they already made up their mind about Jesus. Second, they did not evaluate Jesus against the measure of God's word. They evaluated him against the measure of their religious traditions. So those two things that Guzik points out are things that we need to watch for in our own hearts, don't we? Sort of like how a geologist monitors known fault areas, taking readings to see if there are any signs that the big one might be on the horizon, placing their seismographs all around to catch even the slightest tremble to begin to predict that and give any warning, if possible. We should monitor our own attitudes and perceptions about what we think Jesus should say or do, having our own ideas and trying to conform God into our image rather than seeking to be conformed into his. And second, using God's word as the measuring rod, seeking to know what Jesus does say or teach about those things that concern us, and adjusting ourselves to be in line with that, rather than trying to discount or negate God's standard as the plumb line of authority. Man blames God, accusing him of being at fault for setting some wrong standard or not really knowing what he's doing or when he declares what is right and wrong, when he determines truth or he makes decisions that don't really sit well with us, often due to our short-sighted understanding of the whole picture or of the bigger picture. In the Old Testament book of 1 Kings in chapter 22, there are two kings in Israel. One king is in the north, the part of Israel that had broken away and was running from God, and King Jehoshaphat, who ruled in the south, the part of Israel that was still trying to cling to God, at least most of the time. King Jehoshaphat in the south was one of those kings seeking to be loyal, and the king of the north and King Jehoshaphat are in a good space and in discussions about what they should do about a part of the land that's called Ramoth-Gilead. It was Israeli soil. But the king of Syria had taken it some time before. So the king of the north is thinking about taking it back, since the Lord God had given it to them after all. And this northern king asks Jehoshaphat if he'll consider helping. Well, King Jehoshaphat just wants to know what the Lord would have them do, whether he is learning, uh, learn, uh, leading them to take back part of, this, of the Holy Land and whether the mission will be blessed. That's what Jehoshaphat wants to know. If God's in it, I'll go for it. So King Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire of the, for the word of the Lord today. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And so they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So this straying king from the north goes through the motions, calling on 400 prophets, now, none of them are true prophets. And when they say, sure, the Lord says, go ahead, Jehoshaphat has a check in his spirit and says, wait a second, not sure about this. 
It goes on to read in 1 Kings 22, And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Probably because the 4,000 that the king in the north sought out weren't prophets of the true God. They were false prophets. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. This king in the north says that he hates Micaiah, the true prophet, because he doesn't prophesy good things about this king. Why? Well, because Micaiah tells the truth. And that's what this king is finding fault with. He doesn't want to hear the truth. He finds fault with the truth. So he has 400 other prophets that sweet talk him that he goes to instead. He'd rather hear lies than hear about the truth. Sorry, 4,000 prophets even, even worse. Sadly, it's what many do even today. Ignore the truth. Echoing the sentiments of this king of the north. But I hate him because he doesn't tell me that I'm all good. Finding fault when the fault really lies in his court. And if we're not careful, we can see these same fault lines develop in our own lives as well. We might agree with God in most areas and have our, our world and our, our lives and our choices and our decisions aligned with his word in most areas. But there's fault lines, these little areas that have been fractured that we say, but Lord, in this one small area, I'm not in agreement with you. I'm in conflict with you. Or let I trust you in all this, but in this, I, I don't really know if I can give that area to you or if I can live according to your word. Or Lord, I see everything from your perspective to this point, but in this one, I'm just not sure how to justify that. So I'm going to stay on my side of the fault line. You stay on yours. Those rift zones, those areas of earthquakes, those are what we need to be careful of as well. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, had let many of those develop. They found fault with God in many areas. They say, but I hate him in this area. And so instead they rewrote it. And so the scribes and the Pharisees come out of their hidden spots as they've been watching the disciples there through their FBI glasses and behind their tinted windows. They're now eating with their defiled hands. And these secret service agents of the law step out to confront Jesus and the disciples about this breaking of the tradition of man, not the actual law of God. We see in verses 5 through 8, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. It's the old saying, point a finger at someone else and there are four fingers pointing back at you. They point to Jesus and his disciples claiming fault when they are the ones at fault. Jesus called them hypocrites, actors of the old world wearing those theatrical masks, hiding behind one face all for show and another entirely different face the reality of the situation. It's a season in the U.S. when many dress up in costumes for Halloween, wearing masks to hide their true identities. I had a pretty cool werewolf mask when I was a kid. I thought it was really cool. I was I went as Teen Wolf one year for Halloween after Michael J. Fox came out with that movie. It's an 80s movie. If you haven't seen it, I think they've remade it into a show at some point. I had my mom take a regular t-shirt and sew on sleeves of fake brown fur. Then I made some gloves and glued fur on the backs of them. 
And then this great wolf mask hiding my face, hiding my food, my true face. So I'd walk up to any door, knock on it, say trick or treat. And they would think a real wolf was there. Not really thinking anyone was behind that mask. Well, not really. That's what Jesus calls them out for here. They're hypocrites, actors in masks. And Isaiah had prophesied about them centuries before saying this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He says to them, You come off as being so religious, but your hearts are far from it. You're more concerned with your religious system and traditions than you are about having a relationship with God. You're very, quote, religious, but you're not very devoted. You seem godly, but God is nowhere in this, Jesus says. In vain, you worship me. All those ritual washings, all of that, it's in vain. It's pointless because your actions might make you clean on the outside, but your hearts are far from it. In fact, they had laid aside the commandments of God, Jesus says, holding tighter and elevating higher the traditions of men. Jesus pulled the mask off of them and pointed to who they truly were. Jesus is not afraid to tell us when we have something in our teeth. Jesus does not shy back from exposing where we lack and who we really are, because that has to happen first, that true realization of who we really are, so that he can save us from that. Jesus said this in John chapter 12, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. To ignore what Jesus points out leaves us judged. But anything he points out can be forgiven, and judgment passed based upon his forgiveness. So Jesus presses this a bit more to really expose the hypocrisy of how they had created traditions to hide behind, but they are no closer to God for it. Verses 9 through 13. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. He gives them this example, one of many that he could give, but just one example of when their tradition and God's commands conflicted, and how they upheld their tradition higher than the command. Jesus starts with the truth, with the standard, simple as can be. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Part of the Ten Commandments, the OG commands to obey, taken from Exodus 20 and then chapter 21. Honoring your father and mother, this respect for the basic family unit, and the roles God has given at the foundation of society. Being married is hard. Parenting is hard. And the Lord wrote in a command for it. Of course, the commands and the law, we cannot be made righteous by keeping these, since we will all stumble in some of some way at some time. Galatians 3.21 For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
And to break one command means to break them all. James 2.10 For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. But this command of the Lord is good, to honor father and mother. And that's what the Lord said. But the hypocrisy of the religious leaders felt that they could improve on this, which actually was just a way to twist it in a way that suited them more. It was a tradition called korban, dedicating wealth or material things to God. And in doing so, if Ma or Pa needed some help, you couldn't pass it on because you had already dedicated it to the Lord. Essentially, this was a tradition that looked so holy, but it was just a mask for selfishness. I don't really want to help my parents, so I'll keep it for me and say that I'm giving it to God, Korban. And then so when my parents need a little help, need a little handout, need a little helping hand, I'll have to say, sorry, mom and dad, it's already been dedicated to God. I'm going to have to hold on to it for a little bit longer to keep it for him. But Jesus points out here, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed handed down and many such things you do. They had lots of examples of this that Jesus could have pulled up, but he didn't, but he didn't. He just needed to point out one. They made the word of God of no effect. It had no impact because they had handed down tradition and hid behind that. How important it is for us to let the word of the Lord lead us and guide us to pass on the word of God above all else, to let that guide us in how we live and how we practice and to keep it from being twisted or tainted in tradition. And of course, many religious systems have gone off with tradition, passing on the traditions of man as if they were the word of God. But even for ourselves, we can morph the word of God and begin to form our own traditions, to trust in those things, to hide behind those things, to formulate those things, to make those the the pillars of our life and negate and neglect the word of God. Jesus says what he has to say and then essentially drops the mic and walks away from them. They stand here at the fault zone, the religious leaders pointing to Jesus' disciples and to him for being at fault. Jesus clarifies where the fault is in this tradition. And though there is no earthquake at this point, this tension builds. Another build up toward the crucifixion when they will finally crack and the pressure will be released. But Jesus does not give way in fear of that. He presses in. Mark 7, 14 through 16. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus calls the multitude together. He wants to make something clear. Hear me, everyone, and understand. He wants to clarify for the multitudes because the religious leaders had handed down their traditions, many such things passed them on, and there was confusion. So now, hear me, everyone, and understand there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which means we should all be listening right now at this point. There was so much emphasis on the clean and the unclean, what they could touch or what they could eat or allow near them. And though the law was good in its essence, man could not be righteous through the law. Jesus is even foreshadowing what will happen in Acts chapter 10, when Peter will get a vision of a sheet coming down three times from heaven with unclean animals, and the voice from heaven will say, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter will say, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. 
and a voice will speak to him again from the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this whole scene will happen three times. Jesus is giving a preview of that a little bit in these verses, something that will be clarified after Jesus pays the price of the law, the just for the unjust, setting us free from the requirements and commands of the law. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Those outside things cannot defile us. God is more concerned with what comes out of man. The Pharisees arose with good intentions. The whole, this whole era of the Pharisees, this whole movement of the Pharisees, it actually rose with good intentions. They had seen in Israel's history how the outside influences, like the pagan idols and worship, had ensnared God's people, the people of Israel. And their holy God had sent them into captivity and judgment to learn that those idols they were turning to achieved nothing for them. Sort of, you asked for it, you got it. So they learn it's not what they wanted or needed. So they went into captivity into Babylon. The land was laid desolate there in Israel, and the people broken over their rebellion and rejection of God and his commands. And in the centuries following, they got really focused on making sure they didn't fall into that same trap again. So they got hyper-focused on keeping away from things that might defile them. And that's when the oral tradition developed it in full strength, like not eating with unwashed hands. But in doing so, they went to the opposite extreme, so concerned about what went into them that they could that they that that could keep them from God, that they missed out what was coming out of them that showed that they were really far from God already. And Jesus said this was a message that everyone needed to hear, including you and I. What's inside of us? What comes out of us? I make a protein shake each morning, some protein powder and a few other ingredients, pretty much a daily routine. I put it in a shaker bottle I got for free with some protein powder. It has a flip lid and a a flip top. The lid is tight. You can shake it pretty well and nothing comes out. Unless, of course, you forget to snap the lid shut. Which, unfortunately, has happened to me on a few occasions. I forget to secure the lid. I shake the thing. And protein shake goes all over the place. All over me. All over the truck, even, sometimes. And it delays the morning routine as I'm cleaning up from this silly mistake of not closing the lid. But whatever is inside comes splattering out in those moments. Chocolate protein shake goes everywhere. That's a good way to see things of what is going on in our hearts or see it from that perspective. When we are shaken in life and circumstances and relationships, what comes out? It reveals what is already inside. I can't blame someone for making me mad. Anger is already in my heart, and it comes spilling out when circumstances shake me. Jealousy resides in our hearts, and certain situations bring it to the surface. It's all in there, our sinful nature. And when it comes out, well, it defiles. And this is what the disciples need clarified for them once they head home after all this discussion out in public. Mark 7, verses 17 through 23. When Jesus had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? 
Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. They need some remedial review of this concept. Even they don't get it. Having grown up in a religious environment where so much emphasis was put on the outward and much neglect of the inward. So Jesus seeks to clarify. In fact, he reminds them of the natural process of food. Take it, eat it, digest it, eliminate it. No long-term lasting impact spiritually. But he also lists 13 things here. What comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come out from within and defile a man. It's not an inclusive list, I don't think, but definitely a wide range to give us a picture. Unwashed hands are nothing compared to these things and the ruin that they bring to ourselves and to others. They are symptoms of a greater illness, all of them, a heart disease that is truly at fault. These things just the symptoms of the underlying condition. Jesus calls them for what they are. They're evil, he says, and they defile. Two points of application as we finish up this time and this episode. Sin is at fault. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Man's fallen nature leads us to produce defiling actions, usually starting with evil thoughts. That's the first one on the list. Then moving to evil actions. And sin is at fault. That's why no one will be able to outrun sin. Eventually, or maybe often, will procure something that defiles us and others. And the second point, to change my actions, my heart needs to change first. If naturally out of the heart flow these things, only by a changed heart will our actions change. If I don't want protein shake flying all around when the lid is loose, I need to make sure something else is in there. If I want glitter or sparkles or skittles to fly out when things get shaken, then those things need to be put in there in advance, replacing that protein powder. Jesus said in Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. The tree will result in the fruit that comes forth. Likewise, a corrupt heart will defile many. Those religious leaders needed new hearts. They couldn't hide behind their long robes forever. They had been exposed as frauds. And praise Jesus for his Holy Spirit that exposes our sin and our need to change and forgives our foolishness and our folly. He knows that we're sinners. That's why he came and died for us, who cleanses us from sin and all unrighteousness and places in our hearts his spirit, his preserving life, so that we might bless rather than defile others. And it just takes admitting our fault, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, create in us clean hearts, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within us. May we see clearly the masks that we hide behind, and lay those down at your feet, Jesus, seeking true forgiveness for the sin that we may hide behind, and allowing your cleansing work to take place deep within our hearts. May there be true and renewed life deep within. And may that life, the life that you place within us, Lord, may it be a blessing rather than defile many. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.